Good morning. Uh, we have been going through the book of Hebrews, but for this morning, I thought we could take one quick break and continue on with the theme that Pastor Paul had talked about previously last week in this area of David's life. And so before we get into our reading of the word, let's start with a prayer. Almighty God and most merciful Father, we humbly submit ourselves and fall down before your majesty, asking you from the bottom of our hearts that the seed of your word now sown among us may take such deep root that neither the burning heat of persecution cause it to wither, nor the thorny cares of this life choke it, but that as seeds sown in good ground, it may bring forth thirty, sixty, or a hundredfold, as your heavenly wisdom has appointed. Amen. Please turn with me to the second book of Samuel. So Second Samuel chapter 13. We'll be reading from verses 1 to 22. Second Samuel 13, verses 1 to 22, and you can find it in the Pew Bible on page 246. Second Samuel 13, verses 1 through 22. Please rise for the reading of God's holy word. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, Let my sister Tamar Come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat from her hand. Then David sent home to Tamar saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house, where he was lying down. She took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, Send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them into the chamber of to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come lie with me, my sister. She answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. 
Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her. And being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Get up, go. But she said to him, No, my brother, for this, is, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, Put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was, a, now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So a servant put her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. And she laid her hand on her head and went away crying aloud as she went. And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon your brother been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived, a desolate woman, in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. This month is quite um, an interesting month. Um, it's a month where a lot of us realize when we walk down the street, maybe in the city, or even in our towns, uh, all these flags celebrating what we have always thought to be one of the most grievous sins. And so to celebrate a grievous sin is quite interesting. Because of all this, there has been a lot of controversy taking place between, let's say, in the political world, between conservatives and liberals or leftists. There has been boycotts. I haven't, I've even heard of families here talking, and I overhear them talking, about boycotting a certain retailer because of what they are promoting, especially to our little children. Uh, people boycotting beer companies and seeing if that can actually have any kind of effect in what they are trying to promote, especially to our children. What's more interesting is the flag that is representative of this grievous sin, a sin that God abhors many, many times. He has mentioned in the Bible how he abhors this sin, the haughty eyes, the sin of pride. Many scholars believe that it is the sin that felled Satan from heaven, like lightning he came down because of pride. And it's so quite interesting that this is the wordage that um, we want to use for now, what is a national holiday. It's a month that this nation has separated to celebrate. The staff and I went to get some coffee at a very famous coffee outlet, and they had this flag. 
And in this flag, they had a little caption underneath. And the caption underneath the flag said this, very simply, love is love. I'm sure many of you might be familiar with this caption, but the caption is, love is love. And so some might be wondering, what does this mean? But if you are a millennial or Gen Zer, I'm sure you all know exactly what this is wanting to mean. Love is love. Who are you to judge who I love or whom I love? Who are you to say anything about my love? It's equal to your love. So across the spectrum of what we understand to be love, love is love. It's very reminiscent of this quote I once heard. There was a famous, there is, I should say, a famous director, screenwriter, actor. His name is Woody Allen. And when Woody Allen divorced his wife to sleep with and marry his stepdaughter, so his foster daughter, so adopted daughter, the reporter started asking questions. She was 18, and in responding to this scandalous behavior, this is how Woody Allen uh, responded, he quoted Emily Dickinson, and this is what he said, uh, the heart wants what it wants. The heart wants what it wants. I think that's very similar to this line of thinking and philosophy, love is love. The heart wants what it wants. And that's actually what we'll be going over today. What does the Bible say about love being love? What does the Bible say about the heart wanting what it wants? Is it a simple as the world is purporting, love is love, or the heart wanting what it wants, even if it would be a daughter that you would adopt and marrying her after divorcing your wife of many years. What's interesting about this passage also, I just want to give you a little primer, as I used to do, I love word studies, right? Like, what's procrastinate mean? So procrastinate it's pro, which means forward, right? It means pushing forward or going forward. And crass is day. So procrastinate is pushing forward the day. So when you procrastinate, that's where it comes out from. But there is a word here that's used only here in this passage that we've read and one other time in Genesis 37. And this word is translated differently both times. And so this word is the robe of many colors. So Joseph, because he was favored by Jacob, his father, he would be given this robe, and the Hebrew word is pasim. He would be given this robe of pasim. Now, when I was in my seminary studies, this word fascinated me because of how it was translated and what the Hebrew word meant. And so what is pas or pasim in Hebrew? It means palm. So it means literally your hand palm, okay? So it's the robe of palms. And so when Joseph was given this coat or this robe of many colors, the Hebrew word is robe of palms. And Tamar here is the only other time this is used in the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament. Tamar here is shown to us wearing the robe of palms. And so... I was fascinated by this, and that's why I came across 
about 10 plus years ago, 2 Samuel 13. What does 2 Samuel 13 mean? And why is this right dead smack in the center of 2 Samuel and right after judgment is pronounced against David by Nathan? This happens in chapter 13. I think it's important for us to go over what does this mean? What is the significance of the robe of Pasim or the robe of palms? And so, traditionally speaking, if I had given a young person a robe that would go down all the way to their palms, what can't they do? They can't hold on to anything, especially if it's made of exquisite, high-class, expensive material. Robe of many colors, I think, is a decent translation. I don't think it's bad, because you would imagine that the thread used would be very expensive. And back then, expensive thread was colored thread. And so it could be, very likely, a robe of many colors. But this exact phrasing in the Hebrew language is translated as a long robe. What does that mean? And if you have a robe when you're young that goes all the way down to your palms, what can't you do besides holding anything? You can't work. So when you give someone the robe of Pasim, you would imagine they couldn't really work. You can't hold a shovel. You can't like hold a pickaxe. You can't hold a sickle. You can't hold anything. You're not going to go out harvesting or planting seeds. It's going to go all over your robe. And so these are people that in that community or society that is set apart because they are very special. They're very dear. They're very precious. You give precious people the robe of Pasim. And Tamar is wearing the robe of Pasim. Only twice in the Bible do you see this word, robe of Pasim, put together. And this is the other time. I'm not going to go over what Joseph did because we have a lot to go through. We're not just going to go over 13, but I want to go back to 12, 11, and even 4 to 15, 14, 15, and 16. So what I'll do today, this morning, will be more of a narrative style. And I hope that we will all be able to follow along. David had a firstborn son. His name was Amnon. And if you know anything about you know, history in the past, firstborn sons, even as Jacob would bless Reuben, he would say, you are the firstborn of my loins. You have my strength. The firstborn held high position, high authority, much expectation. They used to be able to see them as people with even the best genes because they were the firstborn, so obviously bigger than all of their siblings. This was Amnon. And this is how, firstly, Amnon is introduced because, first of all, we see... Now, I think I've established that Tamar was someone very precious, someone very unique, set apart, someone to be extolled and honored, and that was David's daughter. Absalom was David's second-born son. So Absalom had a sister whose name was Tamar. And then after this introduction, brief introduction, before they get into it even more... It says that Amnon, in verse 1, loved her. Now, after you've read this passage with me, you might be thinking, there must have been another word for love, right? But that's not true. The word for love is love. Love is love. Here. So it's not some special word for love in the Hebrew. 
It's just love. And he loved her. That's what the narrative says. He loved her so much that he was tormented and he was ill. And he had someone that gave him wicked advice, Jonadab. Jonadab would say to him, you know what you should do? You should make yourself feel very sick. And then when your dad comes to say, what's wrong? How can I help you? You give them or you give him this request. I want Tamar to come and bake me some cakes, bake me some bread. And this word goes back and forth. And so some of the Hebrew scholars, and again, this is a passage that I have studied for a long time. It can mean heart-shaped cakes, it might not mean, it can mean dumplings, but it's a cake that you would shape. So scholars would imagine these are cakes or even potato pancakes, whatever it is that you could shape to your liking. So it could, it could have been hearts. It could have been some, you know, some nice little shapes to bring up the mood of people receiving the cakes. David goes, okay, sure. Now, before I even go even further, um, people long time ago, uh, many years ago, saying, oh, Pete, you got to watch this show, you know? It's like a, a game on some throne or something like that. And then I was like, and so I, I said, okay, I'll, I'll watch an episode. I said, well, this is very disturbing. I don't think I'd like this show. So I didn't watch it. I was like, no, no, no. You got to watch the one, watch, got to watch the version that doesn't have all this explicit, you know, sexual stuff. They have these versions. And I was thinking about it, and I was like, man, even this thing, this story that has had the, had the current, at the current time, at the current pop culture, had everybody in a wild frenzy to watch the next episode, even this show doesn't hold a candle to 2 Samuel 13. The Bible is way more exciting than some game that you might watch on TV. And when people read this passage, they get upset. I think they get more upset than something that George Martin would ever be able to write because we're told that this is true. This is not some fiction that's made up. This is really happening. And it's not just anybody. This is supposed to be from someone that we understand to be the greatest king of Israel in the Old Testament times. David, the person who wrote most of the Psalms. This is David. This is happening in his household. And so when you read this, I read it as a terrible, fascinating, but terrible tragedy. It's a tragedy that happens from generation to generation. Why is that? It didn't start from Amnon. You have to go back to what happened before Amnon. What did his father do? What did his father do before we see chapter 13? Go back to chapter 11. He took and slept with someone else's wife. There was sexual immorality already taking place before in the generation prior. And so now we see this generational sin start to carry down. And this picture is starting to develop. What is sin? And so some people think, like, who cares about what other people think? Who cares about what people do in their own bedrooms or their own houses? It's about me, right? It's just about my own private life. Let me just think about my own private life. But here's the question I pose to you. Does sin ever just stay enclosed in the spaces you want it to stay enclosed? 
Didn't David want to just keep this secret? So what happened was with Bathsheba, he slept with her. Bathsheba got pregnant, and he started to do all this plotting and planning to now to get Uriah, the Hittite, to go back to his home. Maybe he will sleep with his wife, and then they will think that this is their baby. So when that didn't work, because Uriah the Hittite was a very honorable man. He's like, there's war going on. I'm not going to go down and take comfort and pleasure with my family, especially my wife. I'm going to stay in the thick of it. I'm going to have my mind focused. Why is that? Because Uriah the Hittite was an honorable man. In fact, he was one of David's mighty men. Who are the mighty men? They're both stated in 1 Chronicles and 2 Samuel 23. There's a list of mighty men. And if you look at what the mighty men did, you see that they did incredible feats for David, advancing the kingdom of Israel. People would just put, stay on their ground, and the Philistines would come and they would win. There'd be hundreds of people coming in. This is this is like a cartoon. This is incredible, but it says the Spirit of God would be with them. These are the mighty men of David, honorable, strong. Their feats proved that they were mighty men. Who was one of them? Uriah the Hittite. He was one of them. And so to get him killed, David needs to scheme and plot because he's not going to go down to his wife. It's going to be found out that I slept with his wife. This is going to be a great sin in Israel. I need to hide it. So he sends Uriah to the front where the battle is heaviest and when there are valiant men. That's what the Bible says. There are valiant men fighting the Israelites. And what's going to happen is once they're fighting, Joab, you want, I want you to pull them back. And sure enough, when that happened, Uriah the Hittite, one of David's mighty men, remember these are people that he could trust that they had his trust. They are the ones that built the kingdom together. These are the mighty men of David. This is not just anybody. He was killed. And he thought that it was over until Nathan came. Nathan came, and he goes to David, and he says, I want to give you this scenario. This is what happened. I'm just going to read straight from 2 Samuel 12. So if you do have your Bibles open, just go back to the chapter, one chapter behind it. And it says in 2 Samuel 12, And the Lord sent Nathan to David. See, when David wanted to hide his sin, who exposes that sin? Who's light? Who exposes darkness? He came to him and said, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. David's anger. Now David heard this. He hears it from the prophet. This is after the incident with Bathsheba. After he had Uriah the Hittite, one of his mighty men killed. It says David's anger was greatly kindled. 
against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, this is a swearing, a promise, I swear upon the Lord, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. David knew the consequences of evil and what justice demanded. And this is what he said. His, his sense of justice was kindled. His anger was kindled. And then in verse 7, Nathan goes to David. You are that man. And then pronounces the curse. What's going to happen in the subsequent generations, the sword will never depart from your house. God is going to raise up someone from his very household to do this. Now, after that, we see chapter 13, the chapter after. Amnon is obsessed with his sister. And this is what some people go through. And I understand that. When you think you love someone, there is a sense or some kind of level of obsession of something that you can only see this kind of emotion that you have for another person. But it happened to be his sister. Now, what's interesting about the passage that we've read, it's, it, Tamar is always mentioned as Absalom's sister. Only once does it mention that she is Amnon's sister. And the one time she mentions, it, the, the, the Bible mentions that Tamar's Amnon's sister is from the very mouth of Amnon when he says, when he calls her, my sister. This is fascinating stuff. And the, this, this section here is so layered that if we were to do 2 Samuel and go verse by verse, section after section, you would see there is incredible depth to what is being laid out here. But again, I'm going to do this narrative here so we understand what is happening generally and in the broad sense. Now, after Tamar bakes these cakes... He's like, I want everybody to leave the house, and I just want Tamar to feed me. Now, there are so many red flags coming up to this point, but people might be thinking, it's a sister. Come on. What's going to happen? Something's going to happen, and this is going to be truly terrible. Tamar speaks twice, and the two times she speaks, it's the only time of reasoning Amnon has. He doesn't get that reasoning from Jonadab. He doesn't get it from his own heart. He gets it from the victim he is trying to carry this evil out against, Tamar. Tamar says, don't do this thing. This thing is outrageous. It's against anything that God would ever want for his kingdom. This is nothing that even Israelites would do. Even the worst people in Israel wouldn't do this. Now, there may be another way. Talk to father. Talk to the king. Maybe he will listen to you. Now, would he have listened to him? Probably not. But at this point, that's a better option than what Amnon is trying to do to her. Amnon doesn't listen. He's stronger than her. And then he violates her and lays with her. And here is the great twist, almost in an instant, where people might not understand, but if you understand anything about your human heart, then you can really resonate with this. In verse 15, it says, Then Amnon hated her with a very great, with a very great hatred. This hatred was so great. As great as that love was for her, 
he hated her even more. And Amnon says to her, two Hebrew words, that's it. It's translated here as get up, go. But it's only two Hebrew words. He couldn't even muster up any kind of sentence to his dear sister whom he violated. He just says two words, up, out, up, out. And then she speaks a second time. Don't do this. If you do this, it's even worse than what you did in the beginning. And you have to start thinking, how can this be worse than what happened in the beginning? And when people, scholars, even story writers, people who write narratives start to think about all of this, what could possibly be worse than rape? And people have thought and wrote stories about it. There's this one old movie that I watched a long time ago. It's called The General's Daughter. It's not that great. You don't have to watch it. But it's, it's about this raping of the general's daughter. And then there's this one scene in, jail, in, in a prison cell. So what could have possibly happened? You know, this, that, you know, rape. And there's like, worse. He keeps on saying worse. And the guy's confused. He's like, what could possibly be worse than rape? And then the scene ends, right? I think maybe the writer of The General's Daughter read this part. What could possibly be worse than what happened before? But Tamar understood. As young as she was, and she was very young, as young as she was, she understood that there's something even worse. And this is what we see had happened. All the sins David had committed is now playing out generationally. The sin of sexual immorality and the sin of murder is going to happen because Absalom was going to hear this. This is his sister. He's going to say nothing, and he's going to plot and plot and plot. For two years, he might plot. For years, he might plot, and then he's going to murder Amnon. But there is a third grave sin that David did that I kind of gave you a little hint about what it is. What is greater than this sin of sexual immorality or murder? What is greater than that? What is even should be a part of this that we see here in the text? But Amnon would have none of it. And he kicks her out. And then she takes the robe, long robe of sleeves and she tears it. This is what was symbolic of what made, or symbolic of what was special about her. She tears it, put ashes on her head, and she has li been living desolate, it says, all her days in her brother Absalom's house. And they have to one, you have to kind of imagine here. This is here, the narrative is showing us, for us to think about it, and Absalom, every time he goes back to his house, he's going to see Tamar, and he's going to be reminded of what had happened to someone that was considered so precious, not only in their household, but he was the king's daughter, all of Israel. All of Israel deemed her as special, as someone to hold dear, and she would rip this robe of Pasim. This sin is going to continue to carry out throughout the chapters of 2 Samuel. But you have to, I want to go back. How could it be that Amnon, who had loved her so dearly, hate her right around the bend. Maybe you don't understand, maybe you do. I think the older you are, perhaps you understand this a little better. Because even secular pagans, non-Christians understood this. There's this Latin phrase. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to probably butcher it because I can, I don't know, whenever I say Latin, it sounds like uh, I have an Italian accent, but it's, it's not. 
I'm not trying to make fun of it or anything. It's proprium humani geni est odisse quem leiseris. There is this phrase that has been taught in the ancient world. That's the Latin phrase. And the translation of that is, it is the property of human nature to hate the one whom you have injured. It is the property of human nature to hate the one whom you have injured. I think this wisdom, even secular wisdom, as base as it is, is being lost even in this generation. We don't care about who we injure anymore because we, feel, we believe we are in the right. It is my, what I deserve. I deserve whatever it is, and so we damage other people. We damage other people's property. And in fact, it's not out of gratitude that happens. You increasingly hate the people you injure. And we see this playing out today in almost everyday life, right across the bridge, happening almost every day. And this is what is true about the human heart. You don't love people that you injure. You actually start to hate them. And this injury was so great, his hatred was so great. This is one evil, evil act. And when David comes, he says he was very angry. David's very angry, but what happens afterwards? He was just angry. He says very angry. And then you don't see anything happen after that. Now, I want to fast forward a little bit. I want to put all this in perspective. This is smack dab in the middle. This is what's going to start the almost demise of David's house. After that, Absalom is plotting. And at one point, he finds a feast that he could do. And he goes to David, please have Amnon, my brother, come to this feast. And during the feast, when spirits are high, when everybody has let loose their defense and guard, what Absalom does, he gets Amnon killed. So he murders his own brother. Now, if you think about any kind of story or narrative, this is pretty typical of all kinds of tragedies. Look at Shakespeare's Macbeth, all this, all this tragedy going back and forth, hatred, sexual immorality, rape, Murder begets more and more and more. There's no stopping it. Just because you're like, okay, I'm going to stop you here. That doesn't ever happen. And so Absalom murders Amnon. And so what happens after that? Absalom goes out of the city and fleeing. He eventually comes back. I'm fast-forwarding a few details. Eventually comes back, and then he starts to scheme even more. Absalom is a very beautiful man. He's a handsome man. He's probably very, very fit, you know, the best-looking guy you could think of. He even talks about his hair later on. He would cut his hair. It's like worth a ton of money. Who can sell? What kind of dude can sell his hair and get a lot of Absalom. Absalom can. He's a great-looking great guy. People looked at him and was like, wow, this guy's a good-looking guy. And so what happens afterwards is he starts to plot even more. And he plots to overthrow his father. And then the first thing that he does is he gets this man. His name is Ahithophel. Now I'm going to stop with Ahithophel because I think it's very important. Ahithophel is mentioned in 2 Samuel 23 as Ahithophel the Gilanite. There is a specific Ahithophel. 
Ahithophel is also mentioned in 1 Chronicles where Ahithophel was the king's counselor. And in 2 Samuel 16, it says Ahithophel was the counselor for both David and Absalom. So it's this one person. They're not talking about two different Ahithophels. I hope that's straight. One Ahithophel. Now in 2 Samuel 16, verse 23, this is the kind of counsel Ahithophel gave. It says, Now in those days the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. This is not just any kind of counsel. Now, I got to tell you, as a pastor, I receive a lot of counsel. People give me a lot of advice. Here's some criticisms I have. We have this building project. Here's my take on it. People give me a lot of counsel. Some are good. Some are bad. Some are medium. You know, there's a range. But I don't, I don't tell them. Thank you for that. That was medium. I don't say that. I just go, thank you, right? Thank you. I got to take it. But you can't take everybody's advice, right? Everybody's going to have a range of advice, especially as we do this building project. But Hithophel's different. Ahithophel, it says his counsel was like if God was speaking. That's how good it was. His gift wasn't just wisdom. It was the pinnacle of wisdom. Absalom recruits Ahithophel for his rebellion against David. Once that happens, what does David do? David flees Jerusalem. He flees his own capital. One dude. That's how wise this guy was. And David leaves Jerusalem. Ahithophel gives Absalom his first piece of advice. And that is, when David fled, he left ten of his concubines to take care of the palace. And when David fled, and Absalom now raided Jerusalem, raided the palace, he said, Ahithophel said to Absalom, what you need to do is you need to go to the top of the palace, set up a tent, and have sexual relations with every single one of those concubines in front of all of Israel, meaning for public view. Now this sin is just multiplying and multiplying. It's getting more and more disgusting. Like I told you, no TV show can hold a candle to what is going on right now. It's so insane and so bizarre. People are like, how can this possibly be? But there is a culture back in the day when the king would now go on and pass down uh, to his heir his kingship, the concubines would also go with that. And then the king would pass. And then his heir would take over. And this is a forceful way of taking kingship. Right? It's drama upon drama. And so he forcefully takes his concubines in public view, David's concubines in public view, so all of Israel sees. And Ahithophel says, so it's a stench to your father. And that happens. People in Israel are like, Absalom's a pretty great guy. He's pretty strong. We need a strong guy like him to lead. Now, I don't know what kind of state Israel was in to think like that, but it is. And David is now fleeing. All this stuff is happening to him, and these reports are going back to David. And the one report that makes him respond is Ahithophel is with Absalom. This turns David to pray immediately. And he's climbing up the Mount Olives, and he prays, Oh God, frustrate the wisdom or the plans of Ahithophel. Ahithophel gives now Absalom his second piece of advice. Remember, his advice is like really, it's like gold. It's better than gold. If you had to choose between Ahithophel's advice and gold, you'd be a fool to take gold. So Ahithophel, excuse me, gives Absalom his second piece of advice. What I want you to do is I want you to give me 
uh, a few thousand men, 12,000 or something like that, right? Uh, right here. It says, and I want you to give me this army and 12,000 men. And while he is weary and weak, in 2 Samuel 17, I will go and attack them with 12,000 men. All of David's men is going to scatter. That's way too many people to handle, even if he has his mighty men with him. And Hithophel knows. And you have to wonder, how does Ahithophel know so much? Because he was in the council of David, but there's more, there's more. Like I told you, there's layers upon layers. We could go on for a few hours on just this, but I won't. Don't worry. I shan't. Uh, but Ahithophel is the father of somebody. Ahithophel actually is the father of a man named Eliam. It says that in 2 Samuel uh, 23, 34, which I mentioned before. Eliam is the son of Ahithophel, the Gilanite. It's made sure that you know this is the son of Ahithophel, the Ahithophel that we're talking about. Eliam is where? One of David's mighty men. So one of David's mighty men's father is David's close, closest counsel. And so everybody heard Ahithophel's advice. 12,000 men, Ahithophel's going to go. And he says something very, very interesting. Very interesting because, and the wordplay is on purpose. All this wordplay between Hushai and Ahithophel, all this stuff is very, I think you should read it. It's so good. But this is what I want to point out. He says, I'm only going to attack the king. Now, when Absalom hears this, he might have been maybe irked a little. It's like, well, I thought I was the king. But Ahithophel refers to David as the king. I'm only going to attack the king and only he needs to die. This seemed like really good advice. But in David's prayer, God is starting to answer it. Ahithophel's advice was so good that if he had succeeded, you would imagine that David would be no more and it would be Absalom who's taken over the, taken over the country. Absalom's like, you know what? Let me hear this other guy, Hushai. Hushai is a spy that David had planted. Hushai goes, no way. That's not going to happen. You know who's with them? David's mighty men. As if Ahithophel didn't know who they were. His son literally is a mighty man. And so he's like, you know who's with him? All the mighty men. You think he's just hanging around in town? He's probably like in caves, in like the nooks and crannies when you try to go after him. He's going to come and destroy you. And all of Israel is going to be like, ooh, I, I guess I was wrong about Absalom. And they keeps on calling him, Hushai keeps on calling him, your father, your father, your father's a great man, your father's a great planner. And he reminds through this wordage being repeated over and over again who David is. It's his father. He's greater than Absalom. And then when he hears this advice, oh, Hushai's advice sounds better. I'm going to go with Hushai's advice. And so... What was David doing? Actually, he was just out about in town. He might have been killed. He was literally out about. He wasn't hiding in some nook and cranny or in the crevices or in caves. He was out. And so when Ahithophel hears that his advice has not been taken, it says in the Bible that he went away, packed his things, he put them in order, and he committed suicide. He hung himself. Why is that the case? Ahithophel, I believe, was so wise, he understood that once his advice wasn't followed, he knew the rebellion was over. Why bother living? He was one of the closest confidants of David. In fact, David would talk about a very close confidant that betrayed him. In Psalm 41, 9, even my close friend, someone that I trusted, has lift, who shared my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Now you have to wonder, 
I wonder if he's talking about Hithophel. Who else was that close to him? Ahithophel's family circle was right next to David's family circle. They were so close. Now, I told you who Ahithophel's son was. Ahithophel's son was Eliam, who was a mighty man of God. Eliam actually had a daughter. Eliam had a daughter, and that daughter's name is told to us in 2 Samuel 11.3. And it says literally here, and David sent out, inquired about the woman. Remember, he saw the woman bathing, and he's like, I want her. I love her. Love is love. Maybe, I don't know if he thought exactly that. And then one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Eliam was Bathsheba's father. Ahithophel was Eliam's father. So who was Bathsheba? Ahithophel's granddaughter. You see, people always think, if I just sin here, it's not going to hurt anybody. Who could it possibly hurt? It's just some woman bathing, maybe. I just want to have this one-night stand. Is that so bad that I just look at this one image, go with this one person, succumb to this one thing that the Bible says is a sin, What's the big deal? Can't people just do what they want? What does it have to do with me? And it never plays out like that in the Bible, does it? Every sin has a rippling effect, propagating effects, pro, forward, gate meaning breeding. There's a forward breeding, a creation of more and more sins, if you may, if I may. And sin continues to ripple out. You think one sin is not a big deal. You think, what's the big deal if two people say this is not a sin? What's the big deal if this relation goes on here? What's the big deal if that happens? The Bible doesn't say it like that, does it? Sin goes deep. And it ripples throughout communities. It destroys families. And the Bible consistently, whether it's Exodus or Deuteronomy or Leviticus, talks about generational sin. Sin ripples from generation to generation. Your children look at what you do, what you believe, what you will buy, what you will wear, what you will drink, how you act, your response. All these things is what gets carried out. Propagation. By the way, that's where the word propaganda comes from too, but it gets rippled out. How in the world can you stop sin from breeding? How can this be possible? Can you stop the ripple effects of when you drop a stone in the pond and it starts to ripple? Can you stop it? Can you be like, stop it here? Does it ever stop? Or is it a futile exercise? What stops sin from breeding? Let me read to you what James says in his first chapter, verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, birth, when it has conceived gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. This is something that you might be familiar with. This ripple effect goes all the way to what? It goes to death. And then he says, 
Do not be deceived, my brothers, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear. So when you need to think about sin, don't be so quick to talk. Be quick to hear about what the Bible says about any kind of sin, the range and the spectrum of sin. Slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, now after you've heard this, it says, therefore, James says, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness, with humility, the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. What does it mean for us then? Understanding the effects of sin, how it will lead to destruction and death, it's guaranteed by the word of God and by God that this is going to happen. Don't deceive yourselves. Do what the word is telling you. Now, where does this all come in? How does this ever even, like, I don't know, how, how, how how do we do this? Now it's verse 22. I, I want to go right, right be, before, right after verse 16 that I've read in James chapter 1. It says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Here it is. When you have sin and the ripple effects come down, what are you to look toward? You're not, look toward, you're not to look toward yourselves, or you think the world can solve your problems? You think the world can solve sexual immorality, the sin of racism, all these things? You think the world has a solution for that, or are they just only going to create more ripples that will lead you down further into the path of destruction, faster to death? I think the latter. But it says, every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Who could shed light in the darkness? We went over this in the beginning. Who's the only one that can bring light to the dark place that we are in? And so, what kind of people are we then? We are people that are, we've said it, repentant. Repentant in the Greek is metanoia. Metanoia means the changing of the mind. You change your mind. Maybe once you're like, it's not a big deal. But when you see and read the Word of God, the Spirit of God gives you the power to change your mind because the truth is in the Word of God. Now, Paul was writing to his spiritual son, he would say, my son Timothy, and in his first letter, chapter 1, this is what Paul says, and I think this is all correlated, so please bear with me. From verse 12, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly, ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. This is the saying, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. The Father of light sent his light to save sinners. And this is how Paul ends that line. Of whom I am foremost. 
Now, you look at David's story. You're like, this guy is no good. He's a terrible guy. You might look at just chapter 13 of 2 Samuel. You might think, this guy's no good. How can we say he's someone that we should emulate or is a great king of Israel? Let me tell you what the difference is between someone who is holy and someone who is unholy. It's Jesus Christ. David in himself didn't do anything. It was the mercy of God that would make this adulterer, murderer, this deceiver, and the greatest, one of the greatest, like the sins that you could do is what? What did Judas Iscariot do that was so great that we say his name every confession we do? Betrayal. God forgives all of that sin. In Jesus Christ. You know what is deserved when you do all these horrific sins? All the evil that's come upon you. You have no excuse. But in your ignorance, you acted. And in God's mercy, he revealed it to you how horrible it is, how terrifying it is. And the mercy of God is shown to us in Jesus Christ. But I receive mercy, for, I'm going to continue on 1 Timothy 1, but I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, meaning he believes that he was the worst. He looked at David's story. Paul was like, I'm worse than that. I'm the chief of sinners. I'm the worst of the worst. And I believe he really believed it. It wasn't just hyperbole. He honestly believed he was the worst of all sinners. It might be true, actually, because of what he did. But it says, but I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience, patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. He ends with this praise, this doxology. As terrible as I am, the mercy of God is greater. How awesome is God. Who can break the generational curse? What seems to be impossible. You don't want it to pass to your children. You don't want to hurt the others around you, but you will. Who can break it? It's Jesus Christ. Because those that believe in him no longer go toward death. They have eternal life. In our church, the covenant, the new covenant church today, we may think that when we see certain things start to play out in our lives, now I'm going to go even further. Hope, hopefully this is all, all connected. As we see that forgiveness is, in Christ is absolute, when we don't know, there may be a disciplining that takes place. God disciplines those that he loves. He loved David, and that's for sure. You know why David was saved in a sense? Because he was one of God's elect. God chose to save him. David had nothing to say, I deserve this. It's because of God's sheer grace and mercy. And that's what we hold on to. We hold on to God's sheer grace and mercy. And so when we even get disciplined, because we had followed sin, we had followed the ways of the world, whether ideologically, philosophically, or even actionably, we see that the Lord's hand is given upon us as chastisement. Even if we were to suffer some of the consequences of our sin, this is what Nathan said, but you will not die. He disciplines us 
because he's calling us back to him. And in that journey back, you will go through some of what we are well-deserved of, deserving of, but as we call, go back to God. Now, I talked about the complexity, the layering of all this scheming, betrayal, immorality, death. But you have to also realize this. As complex all these dimensions are, what's more beautiful in its complexity, in its diversity, in the dimensions that is shown to us, is God's love. Not only is it able to cover all of this, bring us back to him. He's able to restore us. And as we continue to worship God here, we see the beauty of the gospel. It may be simple, but the beauty and complexity also comes to light. And we start to appreciate God for the depth of the beauty of the gospel that is being revealed to us every time we open the word and every time the Holy Spirit opens our ears to hear. So no longer are we people with ears that cannot hear. God allows us to now hear and be changed. And so when God is disciplining you, calling you to return to him, I pray that you would heed his call. Repent. Turn to Jesus Christ. He is the power that breaks sin. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the word that you give us, your holy, inerrant word. And through it, your people are fed, we are nourished, we are changed. We pray for forgiveness of the times we thought of you and your word too simply, too naively. And we ask God that you will continue to reveal to us as you open our eyes and our ears the beauty that is in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the beauty of the gospel. Let's take this time to pray. And perhaps the Holy Spirit is convicting you now as well. There is a sin that you thought you could hide. But there is no sin that is too dark that the light won't shine on it. Confess it to the Lord. Repent and turn back to him. Pray that the curse will stop with you in Jesus Christ. And perhaps you are there also who doesn't fully understand maybe why all this is happening to you or our world or society. Maybe it's time for you to lift up your heart to the Lord and trust in him fully. Give all that you have. Don't hold anything back. And pray that God will receive your prayer as you lift up your heart to him. Let's take this time to pray.